Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. We're going to be in John chapter 4 as we continue a series entitled Raised to Life. We're going to basically just kind of look over Jesus's some key points of his ministry um, as we lead up to Easter. And this particular point that we're going to talk about today is not so much on his way to the cross, um, but really I think captures the heart of the cross today. John chapter 4. Uh, before we jump into the actual text, you can just put your finger there. I'm going to give you a little bit of context. So John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples were on their way home, on their way to Galilee. And uh, it says that they had to pass through Samaria. We're going to break that down in just a couple of minutes. But they, they had to go through Samaria, and Jesus encounters this woman at a well. And they have this dialogue, and Jesus is a little bit weary and tired from the journey. It's really hot. It's about about noontime. Uh, you're in the desert. So there's this conversation that takes place at this well. And Jesus asks this woman for a drink, and she says, Sir, why are you asking me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. You know you're not supposed to be talking to me. Um, what's the catch? And Jesus looks at her and says, oh, 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 darling, if you only knew who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask me and I would give you a drink. I would give you a drink that you would never thirst again. That would well up within you leading to eternal life. And she says, Lord, can you give me some of that water? And he replies to her, go get your husband. She says, I don't have one. He says, that's true. He says, the reality is you've had five and the guy that you're living with right now is not your hubby. At that moment, she says, I proceed to realize you are a prophet. <laughs> and then she said, it would be a good time to change the subject. So she starts talking about worship. Of course, it's a good way, segue into worship. She says, well, the Jews say we're to worship on this mountain. You know, Samaritans on this mountain. Um, and Jesus said, lady, the time has come where you won't worship here or there. But true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And she says, well... When the Messiah comes, when the Savior of the world comes, he's going to explain all this to us. And he looks at her in her eyes and he says, woman, I am he. And that's where we pick up. We're going to pick up the story uh, in verse, 20, uh, verse 27. It says, just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food that you know nothing about. That's not where my nourishment comes from. He said, uh, and the disciples, they weren't really catching the, the picture. They, they looked and they said, well, what in the world is going on? Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked one another. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up, look around, or open your eyes. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. I want to speak to you today for a few moments around the idea of don't forget your well. Don't forget 
your well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that today something would stir on the inside of us, Lord. God, as we uh, reflect on Palm Sunday, the day where you were making your great entrance into Jerusalem, Lord, with the reality that one moment people are screaming Hosanna and worshiping you, and then several hours later they were yelling crucify him. Lord, we know the gravity and we know the, the greatness of this, that you didn't simply go to the cross. You went through the cross to get to us. And so let this reality permeate our hearts today. I pray that you would awaken something on the inside of us. Awaken us to a reality that only you can awaken us to, the reality of eternity. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Uh, has anybody ever made a decision that you later regret? Like you, you thought you were making the, the right choice, but it turned out that you were making the wrong one. Well, I, I want to take us back to 1871, Chicago, Illinois. D.L. Moody, probably one of the greatest evangelists to ever walk the face of this planet, was preaching at one of the biggest revivals, if not the biggest revival he had ever preached at. And he was talking to the people about the, this, this man that we call the Christ. What should we do with him? And he looks at the congregation and he says, well, why don't you come back next Sunday and we're going to decide what to do with this man we call the Christ. Well, later that evening, the Chicago fires erupted all throughout Chicago, damaging 100,000 homes, devastating them. Hundreds of people have died. And he never got to see that congregation again, many of which were harmed um, in that fire. And it, it, it put such an angst in his soul, and it devastated him to such a degree. He said, from now on, I would rather have my right arm cut off than give people a week to decide what to do with Jesus. He said, never again will I give people a week. And in that moment, D.L. Moody's eyes were awakened to a reality, to an urgency of eternity that, that might not have permeated his heart like it should have. He was awakened to the reality that nobody really is promised tomorrow. And this is so big. And if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. This is so big because how we see spiritually determines the steps that we take practically. It's just the truth. That how we see spiritually will determine the steps, the steps that we take practically. Now, I remember a story of a shoe salesman, two shoe salesmen that walked into a village. And the first one walked into the village, and he saw that nobody was wearing shoes. And he said, man, this is devastating. There's no market here. <laughs> There's no opportunity. Nobody is wearing shoes. And that was a report that he brought back. Well, the second shoe salesman walks into the village, and he sees that nobody has shoes. And he says, oh, my goodness, what an opportunity. The market is wide open. Nobody has any shoes. And it's always blown my mind how two people can be looking at the same situation yet come to a different conclusion. It's just, it's just the way that it is, right, even with cats and dogs, right, right? You, you feed a dog, you shelter a dog, you love a dog, the dog thinks you're God, right? But you feed a cat, shelter a cat, love a cat, the cat thinks it's God. That's why cats aren't going to be in heaven. They're just not going to be in heaven. 
Somebody's like, amen. Oh, you cat lovers, I'm just playing. But, but this is so true. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3, look what it says. It says that a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions, but the simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. You know, as we head into this, this day that we call Easter, over the next seven days, we probably have one of the greatest opportunities as we approach one of the most significant moments in all of human history, if not the most significant. Now, I don't know about you, but the, but the Easter message for me, like many of you, is the most incredible, most inclusive, most welcoming, most incredible, amazing, life-giving message on the planet, the good news of Jesus. Amazing. A, a message where, where everybody's invited, everybody's welcome, and everybody gets a seat at the table the same way. But not everybody sees it like that. You see, over the next seven days, the, the History Channel is going to play a bunch of different segments on Jesus. There's going to be a lot of talk and chatter about God. But not everybody sees the message of Jesus as a great day or great news. In fact, we're going to have several people, I'm sure across churches all around America, all around the world, that we would call Christers, right? Christmas and Easter attenders only. And it's not that, that people just don't like church or don't want to come. I think it's more so the way that they view how God sees them. They have a distorted image of God, and they have a distorted image of the way that God sees them. I think for many people, um, they only grace the, the church doors on Easter and Christmas because there's this sense that God is disappointed with them. And, and they really believe to have valid reasons because they know themselves and they know their sin. And if there's really a God who knows what's happening on the inside and what type of lifestyle they're living, then surely God is disappointed with us. Now, I don't know about you, but when people are disappointed with me, the temptation is, is to stay away. Let me just kind of stay away. I kind of come, you know, once or twice a year, just kind of pay my respects, get in, and then I just don't want to be a disappointment. I think that some of us, we have this uh, reality. I think many people approaching this season have this idea that God is a punisher over a rescuer. That God is just so excited to punish you for your sins. Like God just is waiting there like, I just, I'm so pumped. I get to punish you for your sins. I can't wait, right? But in reality, does God really need help right now punishing you for your sins. Now, we know there's going to be an eternal consequence, but many of us are facing the penalty of our sin already, and God doesn't need to help it out at all. Like if you're walking or living in a, with an addiction, an unhealthy addiction in any way, you right now are experiencing the penalty and the payment of your sin, not just in eternity, but also right here temporarily, aren't you? I think if you're living in a volatile relationship, and maybe as a result of your anger, your pride, some of your dysfunction, the relationship's just kind of a mess. <laughs> like God doesn't need to punish you a whole lot in regards to that because you're facing a lot of the punishment already. You see, the truth of the matter is, yeah, there's going to be eternal consequences to our sin, hands down. But in, this, but, but in this moment, in this time, and in this life, God is not simply longing and looking to punish people. He's longing to rescue them. Not punish them in there, but rescue them out of the sin that's so easily entangling and tripping people up. Are you guys, are you guys tracking with that? And so, so for me, as I pondered that, I thought, man, we have the greatest opportunity over the next seven days to change that narrative. We have 
the opportunity over the next seven days to debunk some of these myths that are happening in people's hearts. Because some people believe that God is in love with the future, better improve them. But surely God couldn't love me in the state I'm in right now. I mean, come on. Like, maybe when I get better, maybe after I clean up a little bit, then God is going to embrace me and accept me. But you and I both know that that, that couldn't be the first. That could be, that, that's so far from the truth. That there's nothing that you could do to make him love you anymore. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you any less. That's this, this reckless love of God that we're singing about today. So we have this great opportunity to, to wipe out some of those myths and some of those, some of those lies that the enemy has planted in people's lives. And we have the opportunity to say, listen, God's not excited to punish you. God, he came to rescue you. Like I said, he didn't come to the cross but through the cross to get to you. That he desires to rescue. He desires to redeem. He desires to restore you back to your God-given destiny, a God-given relationship with the creator of the universe. Are you guys tracking with me on that? And in Jesus' words himself, he said, I did not come for the well, but for those who are sick. That's why I came. Not for the well, but for the sick. But if, if that's, if that's going to be a reality, like if we're really going to, to reach people, if we're really going to break down some of those myths, some of those barriers, I think something needs to be awakened in our heart. I think an urgency and the reality of eternity needs to, we just need a fresh awakening to that reality. Because I'm going to tell you what, how you see spiritually will determine the steps that you take practically. And so, so I, I started to think, man, Lord, how, how do we frame this? I mean, a lot of us know eternity is important. Many of us have thought about it. A lot of people are talking about it especially in this particular time, but I thought, man, how, Lord, how do we frame it? And I feel like it drops us right into to the text today, into a situation that's taking place, but there's two different perspectives. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. We see the disciples with the temporary perspective, and we see Jesus with an eternal perspective. And today I just want to take a couple of minutes, and I want, I want to contrast the two. Because I think sometimes um, we can get some things mixed up. And I want us to see clearly a contrast in this text when it comes to a temporary perspective and an eternal perspective. And so the first one is this that we see in John chapter 4. God's going to kind of unpack for us is that when we have an eternal perspective, our love for God is greater than our love for convenience and self. Let me explain. John chapter 4, let's go to the text. It says this, now he had to go through Samaria. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, I really want to lean into this, this had to go. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Now, now, even though geographically it's a shorter distance to get to Galilee by cutting through Samaria, however, it would have been the most inconvenient route. Because Jews and Samaritans, they did not click. They did not get along. Matter of fact, there was a lot of racial hostility, a lot of religious hostility. Uh, the Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds. They would consider them as dogs, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. This probably was not going to be the safest route, even though it was the shorter route, but also the potential drama that could happen along the way. And so we see Jesus, 
He's tired from the journey, so we see his humanity being reflected here. It's hot. It's noon. Now, it would make sense for him to show up at a well to get something to drink. However, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria for a geographical, uh, for geographical distance or for an easier route. He had to go through Samaria because there was a woman there that was desperate in a city that needed some good news. And so, so I started to think, what compels somebody to do that? I mean, really think about it. He's tired from the journey, and it's noon. I could see Jesus wanting to get something to drink, but not deal with somebody's mess. Right? You know when you're tired and you just don't want to talk? It's a little bit inconvenient, isn't it? What about when it's scorching hot? Now, Israel gets hot on a whole nother level. When we were on our tour in Israel, our guide who lives there got heat stroke. We're like, Hannah, what happened? It gets pretty hot in Israel. And so here he is in the desert. The last thing you want to do is deal with people's drama, mess. But he meets this woman. And here he is. She has nothing to offer him. She has probably a little bit of an attitude, and she's got a whole lot of brokenness. And Jesus meets her in this place. What propels somebody to do that? I'm hot. I'm tired. You're a mess. You have nothing to offer me. What about the embarrassment? I mean, because for a Jewish rabbi to talk to a woman in these days, it, it, was, it was preposterous. It was humiliating. Women, many times, if you were speaking to a woman in public, they would look at her or they would, they, they would look at that scenario as a distraction. And, and on top of that, she's a Samaritan woman and she has a loose reputation. Come on, how many of you guys are so glad that God is not bound by religious barriers? God is not bound by racial barriers. That God will do whatever he can and in, inconvenience himself in such a way to get to you and I. But what really compels somebody to do this? See, Jesus had an eternal perspective. Jesus' heart and his mind were focused on eternity. And he saw, as much as he understood eternity, he saw a woman and a city that did not understand it. That did not understand eternal life. And so he's like, man, if you could only get this truth that I know, it's going to change the game for you. What truth is that? Well, I believe it's found in John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus said, now this is eternal life. Sometimes we get eternal life mixed up. We think that eternal life is just quantity of life later, which is true. But it's also quality of life now. Eternal life isn't just simply a destination that we arrive at later, but it's a relationship in the present. Jesus said, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, Jesus knew that this, this woman was ignorant of two things. She was ignorant of who he was and what he had to offer. Come on, I want, you to, I want you to take a trip down memory lane. Those of you guys who are following Jesus, if you're a first-time guest, just humor us for a moment. But take a trip down memory lane where you were ignorant of those two things. Where you were ignorant 
of who he was and what he had to offer. And then through some maybe friend or an invite or a church service or maybe a pastor speaking, God met you at your well. And when you began to realize who he was and what he had to offer, the game changed forever. Your life changed. Your family changed. I mean, everything changed forever. And I just started to think, man, sometimes because we're well, we can forget about our well. We can forget about where God met us in our brokenness, in the heat, in the mess, and completely inconvenienced himself, what, to meet us in our need. I mean, that's, that's just huge. And Jesus looks at this woman, and, and look what he says. He says this. He says, <clears throat> go to the next one for me. He says, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty. They'll never be thirsty again because it's, it becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And so eternity is on Jesus' mind. He's looking at this woman, and he sees that there's a deficit. He sees that there, there, there's a dysfunction. He sees that there's some suffering, and he knows the solution. He is the solution. See, something happens when you have the solution to people's suffering. I mean, think about it for a moment. The truth eventually has to tell. It has to tell. Like how many times have you been with people that you care about, people that you love, who are suffering maybe because they're ignorant in a particular area, but you have the answer? How quick are we to say, oh, man, this is what you need to do. This is it. Like when I'm suffering in my workouts, I call Carmen like, what do I do? And she'll say, I got the solution. You need discipline. <laughs> like we just, we, we, when we have a solution for people, we want to we help. We want to bring a remedy. Come on, when they invented polio, as many times as it took to invent that vaccine, I think it was on the 201st time that they actually nailed it. So grateful they didn't quit on the first try. 221st time the vaccine for polio was invented. Now, what if they would have just said, hey, man, what a great, what a great discovery. Man, let's put that in the journal, frame it on the wall. No way. They said people are suffering, and we have the solution. We need to get this out there. We need to do whatever we can. But for some reason, when it comes to our faith, we take a different posture. Like none of us would have a problem saying that racism is wrong because it is. None of us would have a problem saying, hey, um, I don't care what you believe. I don't care what your stance is. I don't even care what you've experienced, even though I'm going to be sensitive to that. The bottom line is racism is wrong. Like, none of us would have a problem with that. But when it comes to our faith, when it comes to the solution, the remedy, for the sin of humanity that we as followers of Jesus have. Now, if you're just a first-time guest, man, soak this up because I'm going to bag on us real quick, right? We have the solution, but so many times we, we say things like, oh, well, you know, uh, I don't want to impose, you know, my faith on people. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I mean, that's kind of their thing and kind of my thing. And, and many times what we're really saying in that is we're redefining truth and we're saying that when it comes to God, there can really be no absolute truth. 
or we really don't believe that eternity exists. And so we kind of sit on the sidelines and just say, well, I, uh, I hope they make it. Trying to hope somebody talks to them at one point. And I'll never forget this, this quote from this atheist. Look what he said. I want to read this to you real quick. He says it like this. He says, I've always said I don't respect people who don't evangelize, meaning tell people or proselytize, tell people about Jesus. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's really not worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward. And the atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me along and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell somebody? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's at a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is so much more important than that. And so I'm just wondering what, 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 the, what the issue is. And if we can get down to it, because I think it's just a reality that we have more of a temporary perspective rather than an eternal perspective. And as a result, the way we see spiritually is affecting and dictating the way we step practically. And so let me take you all the way back to, to the first missionary to Korea. Now, now, this guy was first a missionary to China. Let me show you a picture of him. His name was Robert Thomas. And Robert J. Thomas was first a missionary to China. And he found out that most educated Koreans could read Chinese. But at this point, they, they, they were unreached uh, with the gospel. And so he bribed his way onto uh, uh, the General Sherman, a ship that was going to Korea, trying to, to you know, build some trade and, and build some relationship. It was real hostile territory. So they go up the, the, the Taitong River, I think it's called, uh, to Pinyang. And when they get there, it's hostile. Like the Koreans, they're ready to go because there's been such hostility um, uh, uh, b- between outsiders and and them, and so, just kind of a little war breaks out, and they're they're starting to onboard to the boat, and and people are getting killed, and so, people who are on the ship are jumping off, and and this guy was one of them, and they're getting to shore, and they're just getting slaughtered. And Robert J. he grabs his Bibles, and he gets off the ship, and as he's being macheted to death, he's shoving Bibles in people's hands. Just, I mean, he's getting slashed everywhere, just shoving Bibles in people's hands. Like, what, what compels somebody to do that? It was later said that one of the men that participated in his death saw such a radiance on his face that he picked up one of the books that he left. And later his grandson became a pastor. And the people of Korea began to be evangelized. Like what, what moves somebody to such a place like that? Well, if something happens when the truth of God permeates your heart and your love for him and your love for others starts to resonate, there becomes a reality that eternity is a very real place. All of a sudden it becomes so much greater than our convenience and self. It's the love of God. I would say what was happening inside of this man was Jesus the love of God compelling him to go to the world because God so desperately loves people and wants to see them rescued. That's just amazing. Second thing I want us to to take a look at is that with a temporary perspective, you'll be focused on the found, but with an eternal perspective, you'll be distracted by the lost. 
And we kind of see this unpack here. We're going to continue in John chapter 4. I want to, John chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, we're going to go ahead, go there for me. There you go. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, this is the important part I want you to lean into, is that his disciples had gone into town to buy some food. So she, the disciples went back to this town where this woman was from. They had to get some food. The journey was long. They were hot. They were tired. They were hungry. And so they, they go back to this town to grab some food. Now, it's going to continue. We're going to skip down. Skip down, John chapter 4, verse 31 through 33. It says, meanwhile, his disciples urged him. So, so let, me, let me paint a picture for this meanwhile. So Jesus has this whole dialogue with this woman. She goes back into the city and starts telling everybody what had happened. And meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? <laughs> Come on, boys. You're just not catching it. So this woman, meanwhile, as they're coming back with their lunch, has gone back into the city. She has no formal biblical education. She has no training, but she's encountered Jesus. And so she, she, she may not have a, a theological dissertation um, at, at the forefront, but she has a story. And she goes back and she says, man, I don't know about what just happened, but I got to tell you something. I know I have like five husbands. I know I'm a wreck. I know I'm a disaster. I know all that. I know you guys don't like me or like to talk to me, but something has happened. And so listen, for you, if you're here today and you're afraid to tell people about Jesus, can I just, can I just make, break it down for you? It's not as hard as you think. And this woman had, she didn't even have a reputation. But something had happened. And she says, listen, I just met a man that told me everything about my life, all my junk, all my stuff, but I feel so loved. I, I don't know whether I got slapped or loved. I don't know really what happened. But maybe he's the Messiah. You got to come and see for yourself. I don't have all the answers. Just come and see. You talk to him. Just come and see. She just simply planted a couple seeds. She simply just extended an invite. Come and see. And the disciples are focused on their number one. No onions. No special sauce. Please add ketchup and mustard. And I'll take a strawberry shake. Now, now, this is what's so perplexing to me, is these guys were fine because they were already found. They're okay because they're already walking with Jesus. We got to take care of the found. Got to make sure that we're eating good. And I was so convicted by this. I felt like God was just like, grabbing my heart in such a loving way, saying, come on. Because here they left the same city, and there was no change. They walked into the same city with a completely different perspective. I mean, really think about that. This woman goes to the city, revival is breaking out. The disciples go, and they got some lunch. Like, like just, 
Think about that for a moment. I thought, how many times have we had some powerful worship moments where God has done some incredible things on the inside of us? God has maybe saved our marriage or God has done, you know, this or that. And we leave a service and where do we go? We go to lunch. I feel like the Lord say to me, this isn't to you. This is for me. Like, when was the last time you told the waiter about what was happening? Like you're at the table and everybody's talking and sharing about what God is doing and, and this is awesome. And then there's people all around us that are completely lost, but we're so focused on the found. God's saying you need to be a little bit more distracted by the lost. Because with the temporary perspective, you'll see a city lost. I mean, think about it for the disciples. This is Samaria. Get in and get out. This is going. We're not even supposed to be here. By the law, we're not even supposed to eat these people's food. Just get in and get out. Get your food and leave. A temporary perspective will always look at what it can get from the city. But an eternal perspective says, man, how can I serve it? A temporary perspective sees a city that's lost. An eternal perspective sees a city that needs to be reached. I mean, come on, just let this sink in just for a moment. I remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 15. He says, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Does he leave the 99? Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? I thought, this is awesome. I've read this passage a ton of times, but until he finds it? Like, it's not like this. Weak pursuit. It's super intense. Like eternity is on the line. Why does God leave the 99 for the one? Because as much as he loves the found, he's still distracted by the lost. You know, I used to be on the board for an organization called Love Never Fails, a human trafficking um, organization. Incredible. They're doing an incredible work. And, and they would go out. Um, you know, into the streets of Oakland and um, on certain parts of, of uh, Berkeley and all throughout this region, San Jose, I mean, all over the place. But there was one particular time, they're on East 14th. It's a Saturday night. And they go out and they, they try to rescue prostitutes. And not just, not just simply like, you know, give them a high five or say, hey, we're going to pray for you. But, hey, we'll get you out of here tonight. Like, let's go. Get in the car. Let's go. And so they're out one night, and uh, there was this girl, and there were a couple of her pimps were around, and they could tell, like, she wanted to get away. And, and they, they felt a little bit threatened because there was kind of a crowd, a little bit of an environment. So they grabbed the girl, they threw her in the car, and they took off. And so the cops came, and they said, man, what are you guys doing out here? Like, go home. They said, no, you, you don't understand. Like, there was a girl here, and, and, and she's being trafficked, and, man, go home. And, and, and bless their heart, listen, they see this stuff so much. It's so easy for them. It's no judgment towards the, the officers. I mean, they see it so much. It's so easy to get hard and callous to the reality of what's happening. Plus, they're in a very dangerous part of town. And then at the very same moment as they're talking, the girl comes running down the street barefoot. They said, there she goes. Turns out she'd been missing six months. Can I just tell you, for her parents, that one mattered. That one mattered. I tell the story in Girl Track where uh, Jackie and I, uh, there was a particular morning that I took my daughter uh, to Safeway with me. Right, I'm a good dad. I want to take her with me wherever I go. And, and I told Jackie, but she didn't quite hear me because she was in and out of sleep. 
And so Jackie wakes up and Abby's gone. She's gone. And so I'm working really hard on not being on my phone with my kids. And so when I'm in the store, I just leave my phone in the car and we go shopping. So I come out, I have six missed calls, and then I get another call right after that from an officer. Mr. Lacey, is this, is this Mr. Lacey? Yes, yes, this is. Yes, this is officer so-and-so. Uh, we got an APB out on your daughter. We got the, the entire Livermore is combed. What? Do you have your daughter? Yes. Do you, are you sure you have your daughter? Yes. I get home, and Jackie is just, uh, she's weeping. She's, oh, my, my baby. Can I just tell you? In that moment, I felt so bad. I said, guys, I'm a chaplain. I'm responsible. It's all right. But in that particular moment, can I just tell you, as much as Jackie loves, uh, loves Hannah and loves Oli, she was not like, oh, I'm missing one. It's okay. I got two. In that moment, she was so distracted by the lost one. that She's like, man, we got to do something. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why as a church, we cannot be a, a, a spiritual cruise ship, but rather a spiritual coast guard where, where, we'll, where we're willing to go to some of the most crazy, some of the most dark, some of the most traumatic, ocean-waving situations, freezing for one. Now, that preach is really good. But until we get a heart for lost people and until we get an urgency for eternity, it will be a great message for Sunday that we, we, we put in the books. But until we can start to see spiritually, we'll never take those steps practically. Let me give you the last one here. The last one is when we have an eternal perspective or a temporary perspective We'll see reaching people, it will be a bother to us. But with an eternal perspective, reaching people will be a blessing. I love how Jesus continues and wraps this up. He says this, and uh, Jeff, you can come up and play for me. Worship team would be awesome. He says, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest continue. But I say, wake up. Open your eyes and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest, and the harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. Now, this is, this is the big, now let me just stop there before we go to the next. I want you to lean into this. Jesus is saying, you want to know where my nourishment comes from? You want to know where my fulfillment comes from? It's not from a number one. Like, yeah, we need to eat. I'm not saying, no, no, the pastor told me not to eat. Don't do that. But Jesus said, you want to know where my nourishment comes from? It's doing the will of my Father. It's reaching lost people. You know how much that fills me? Temporary perspective will tell you that will drain you. Eternal perspective will say that will fill you and nourish you like never before, right? And he says, man, the, the fruit, people come into eternal life. Now, a lot of times when we talk about a message like this, people get disappointed because they wanted something for themselves. They feel like, oh man, I came to church and we're talking about reaching other people. Like, I need some stuff. I need some things. And I, but let me tell you, the result is not just for the lost person who needs Jesus, but it's for our heart. Look at the result. Look what Jesus says. He says this. He says, what joy awaits 
both the planter and the harvester alike. What joy. Like, that's why we're, we're constantly pumping, you know, grow track and jump on a team. Not because we need your help, but because we want you to experience a joy of what it's like to reap a harvest. What it's like to make an eternal difference in the life of somebody else. Because if you don't experience that joy, your growth is going to be stunted and you're going to hit a lid spiritually. So we, we, we want you to experience the joy. And the hope is that you will taste. The hope is that you'll just taste what it's like. Just a glimpse here. That you want to get out into this world, into your areas of influence where God has put you every single day. And say, oh, the joy that awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. Ladies and gentlemen, I think that we have a lot of malnourished Christians who are lacking joy and nutrition because there's a lack of mission in our life. And there is a joy that you and I will never know. Jesus knew the untold story of this woman. In his sovereignty, he knew the untold story. That's why he went. And now Jesus fills up, fills us and compels us, just like that missionary. Say, there are so many more people at so many more wells who are thirsty. And we have a solution to their suffering. Will you go? But see, here's the truth, is that the first step, if you're taking notes, jot this down, that the first step in reaching them is seeing them. If you can't see them, it's going to be hard to reach them. And so let me just paint a picture for us as we go. Right now, currently, there's 7 billion people on the planet. About 2 billion profess to be Bible-believing Christians. That means 5 billion people right now are headed towards a Christless eternity. On 9-11, as those Twin Towers fell, 2,996 people lost their life. If you were to line them up foot by foot, it would take you a half of a mile. 2004, December, tsunami hit Indonesia and the surrounding regions. 250,000 people died in a moment. If you were to line them up foot by foot, it would take you 45 miles. I've done the math. It'll take you right from our front door to the Golden Gate Bridge. But 5 billion people, if you were to line them up foot by foot, from one part of the equator and just started going around the globe. Foot by foot, they would wrap around the globe. Foot by foot, right in front of each other. Not one time, not 10 times, not 20 times, not 30 times, not 35 times, but 37.3 times around the globe are people headed for a Christless eternity. And I'm just telling you, I got such an angst in my heart. I was repenting this week, and I was asking God to revive this on the inside of me because there's so much opportunity. Jesus says, open your eyes. Open your eyes. The harvest is ripe, but the labors are few. Pray to the Lord that he would send forth labors into the harvest. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are well, and let me define that. If you know Jesus, even though stuff may be crazy, you're well. Don't forget you're well. Don't forget you're well. Because Jesus wants to send you to somebody else's who's in need. So now that we can see spiritually a little bit, I just want to leave you with these two things. What do we do practically? Well, we have an incredible opportunity, as Pastor Chris said this week. Just want you to do two things. Pray and invite. That's it. 
Just pray that God would move in people's hearts this week. But here's the, here's the catch. Ready? Here's the caveat. Don't just pray. Pray for the people you're going to invite. Are you tracking with that? Don't say, all right, I, I'm going to do the prayer part. Yeah, do the praying part. But if you're really praying, God's going to move you to invite. 80% of people will say yes. 80%. I'm believing for a record-breaking Easter this year. Not because we want to pack the house four times to make us feel secure, but because there are people who are suffering that need a solution. And Jesus is, is his name.